The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. You know, strawberries we've been doing now for six months and we're killing it on strawberries, but also getting into the next step, which is biopharmaceuticals and biocosmetics. There's so many companies in this world importing from the tropics who have no control over the sustainability of the plants that they need to purchase for some, you know, pharmaceutical or cosmetic application. I can grow that literally in your warehouse besides you in Toronto, New York City or LA. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 6 regular listeners, welcome back. And if you're new and positive, you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a long overdue conversation with the folks over at Calera, specifically Dr. Christian Toma. He's the co-founder and chief science officer there. Calera has been making a lot of news lately, and they're one of the largest operators of vertical hydroponic farms. In this episode, Dr. Toma and I discussed the nuances of shifting from the CEO role to CSO, his inspiration behind the High Cube, and how Calera is expanding its international footprint through targeted acquisitions. There's been a lot of news lately around Calera, and a lot of our conversation focused mostly on Dr. Christian's story and was recorded before some of the more recent Calera news. This week, I get to speak to Eric Lang. He's the president and co-founder of ZipGrow, which empowers local farmers to grow better food for their communities using their patented ZipGrow technology. In this episode, Eric and I talk about the importance of educating the masses on the overall ag tech industry, why local is better than organic, and what ZipGrow is doing to fix the broken food model. We talk all about his inspiration for starting the company, ZipPods, and advice he has for aspiring farmers looking to break into the industry. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love if you leave a rating or review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Appreciate you being patient with our production team we were celebrating the holidays here in the States, and that's why the episode didn't go out this past Friday, but we wanted to make sure we keep the wheels in motion here 
and get caught up. And I hope you're enjoying this season and these episodes and these conversations because I know I am and I'm excited to bring them to you. But before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Eric, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference. So it was really eye-opening for me. So I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me. <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. Regular listeners to the show will know that we are also fans of the work being done by the iGrow News team. The team at iGrow has been kind enough to provide a free month of their paid subscription to the Indoor Vertical Farming newsletter. And those will be available to the first three listeners that send in a review. So ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, the first three reviews that come in. Once it's sent, send an email to harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com along with your preferred email, and we'll be sure to get that set up for you. Okay, so Eric Lang, president and co-founder of ZipGrow, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. So I think we connected via the team at Indoor AgTech. You guys had a booth, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we've been to a few booth conferences lately, and uh, it's nice to get back out in the world. So yeah, that was great. What's the last one you've been to? Actually, coincidentally, the last one I went to was a very kind of a small, more localized one for real traditional farming is called the International Plowing Match, okay. which is like real old school farms. And that was actually fantastic. It was a whole different world than the, you know, indoor egg con concepts. So it was actually really great. What are some of the topics covered at a conference like that? That is the biggest issue and not issue. The challenge we were really wondering is, you know, when, again, I also come from a very, I'm a traditional farming yeah. background. So big dairy farm. Grew up my whole life. I still actually own a beef farm and lamb. We used to, my wife and I do lamb and beef and turkey and chickens and all that traditional stuff. And I choose to live where I am as a lifestyle choice. But, you know, attending a conference where you're dealing with large, you know, cash crop farmers or whatever, the old traditional style, which, you know, we, this industry, we don't really touch as much as I think we should was actually really great because we got to see that focus of like, hold on, what the fuck? What is this? <laughs> and it's like, and I expected to get all these old crotchety farmers, which again, my father was one and et cetera, right? Yeah. Saying this is such a gimmick. And really they were like, ah, yeah, I get it. Like they're business, they're all business. And it was really great just to see that other avenue that we kind of don't touch in this industry as much as we should, like traditional farmers. Yeah. So I'd love to touch on some of that as well. But I'm wondering, because you said you do come from traditional farming background, but you studied business, I imagine, in university, and then you start to work in the plastics industry from what I saw early on. <laughs> I kind of have a bit of an issue. 
Yeah. So I actually am traditional farming background. My degree was actually in education, ended up being a teacher for a minute, for about two minutes probably, and then decided that didn't make sense. And I actually did an MBA seven years into my actual business just to do one because I thought I probably needed one, although I don't know if that's really true or not. So yeah, I I just have a bit of an issue of very big curiosity about how things work. And sometimes I have a bit of an issue once I figure out how it might maybe make sense to work, I feel like I have to start a company. <laughs> so I've had a few companies. Yeah. And so the first one was Norplast? Yeah, first one was Norplast. It was actually a brokerage company okay. brokering commodities, plastic and others from North America to mostly China and also Europe and a few other places. I also then started an actual full-scale industrial recycling company doing mostly plastics. Okay. Then did another company doing extrusion and pelletizing and some biocomposites and plastic lumbers, nanotech, uh, some very interesting things, which were just a lot of fun. I had another plastic fab company, which we were doing fabrication, so packaging warehousing company, and fell into uh, indoor ag, which was So what did you learn from those early companies? Because you obviously had leadership roles there as well. And was Nora the first time you were leading a company? Yeah, I was in my late 20s and that was my first company. So I founded all those companies and just, I mean, business is business. If it's ag or if it's, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. Business is business. And and 80% of all businesses have the same issues, same concepts, same challenges. And that, that's what I love. I, it's also kind of an interesting coming into this industry because I think the indoor egg space, I think a lot of the new companies coming into this kind of come into it as a tech startup. I come into it as a brick and mortar concept because to me, I don't really consider it. I mean, there is new tech, but it is brick and mortar. We're a manufacturing company the way I look at it rather than a tech company where we get, you know, series A, B, C, D, et cetera, until we finally actually make some sales. So I kind of go the opposite and we've literally had zero funding, no series, anything. And as far as I'm concerned, we must make money. That's how we finance growth. It's a customer focused business model. When did AgTech come on your radar? Actually, it's funny. I was an investor, was kind of dragged into being an investor because of a a friend who wanted me to invest in uh, her spouse, which I did and just kind of did it as a, you know, another investment. It was kind of interesting and I love learning about new stuff. And then the more I got into it, and again, I kind of admit I thought it was a little bit of a gimmick as well. <laughs> Coming from traditional ag, I'm like, oh, this actually makes sense. And the more I got involved in it and the more that I was asked to come on and, you know, kind of help out in this company, et cetera. And then I ended up kind of jumping in full bore and sold my last company and started this one new as, as a new company. What were some of the interesting, because you came in probably as maybe as an outsider with a different perspective and this brick and mortar perspective, like you said that, you know, having interviewed several folks in this space, that's not always the case. And then there's a lot of folks that have had very successful rounds. And so what was your mindset coming in? And did you feel like there was something that you could do here that you saw wasn't being done or something you could do differently? Yeah, I think so. I think and again, I have nothing against, you know, series A, B, C, et cetera. And sometimes I'm like, geez, I would love to have had a couple of those and make my life a little easier. But no, my concept was more, and our concept here at Headset is actually more, we actually do it. So while there's a lot of people, and again, some of them are fantastic business models in tech, but whether there's a lot of companies that are talking about how great things are and do, spending a lot of money on their hype or their, you know, what have you, we're quietly and behind the scenes building farms 
and kind of doing it. So my concept was, you know, long term, I'm 100% in. We know that this is an industry which is taking off and it will continue to take off and, you know, rising tide rises all boats, et cetera. But I think long term, I'm looking at staying power and, you know, who's going to end up being those foundational companies that go to the next 10, 15, 20 years. And that's kind of how I've looked at it rather than that quick. Let's get big as fast as possible. Yeah. And so coming from that traditional ag background, I imagine that had to be helpful. And what learnings did you take from what you grew, how you grew up and how were you able to apply that with uh, ZipGrow? Well, I, I was actually thinking about just this morning because dealing with some things, it's like the one thing I will, I will say, you know, traditional ag, I don't think people consider them as entrepreneurs as much yeah. as they should. Um, and I can't even imagine a more difficult business to be in than traditional ag where, you know, just, you know, if you're a cash crop farmer or what have you, you know, eat all of your income once a year, yeah. if you're lucky. And there's just so many things that you have to do. And I think one of the big parts was you have to kind of do everything, right? So, and that's kind of how we done Zipgrow, we are, we've become everything. So whether it's, we, even though we are equipment manufacturer, patented equipment manufacturer, seller of equipment, we also of course have to be growers because we have to now teach, we have to be the experts at growing. We have to be the experts at new tech. We have to constantly be developing new products. We have to be able to educate and train because as, as you know, in this industry, a lot of, a lot of potential customers actually don't have an ag background. So there's, we have to kind of do everything. So being able to, and again, that's my team. I'm so proud of my team here, especially in the, in the beginning stages of the business where, you know, everyone's wearing so many multiple hats. We just have no choice, but to not be too specialized and just uh, take on everything and be everything. So I think that's a big part of it. Just understanding that as an entrepreneur, you do just do it all and you just got to figure it out. Did you grow up in Ontario? Yeah, I grew up in Eastern Ontario, rural Eastern Ontario, where I still currently live and I choose to live. It's a lifestyle choice. There's good and bad with that. You know, we could potentially have a lot bigger selection of employees and a few things, but I don't think we could ever have any better selection of employees. When people choose to live here who are talented and smart and educated and have a great attitude, but they choose to live in this rural area, kind of like we find each other and it's like, those people take us to the next level. What was life like growing up there? I also, as a dairy farm kid, couldn't wait to get out. So I left at 17. As soon as I could get the heck out, I got out. Yeah. And as soon as I started having kids, I realized, holy, hold on, this is a great way to grow up. And then moved home and then made my kids do the same. <laughs> <laughs> what was life like growing up on a dairy farm? It was a lot of work. Yeah. There's no breaks. Dairy, especially over a lot of the other ones, like, it doesn't matter, you know, Christmas, New Year's, like it's still got to milk the cows. So just a lot of work, a lot of dedication. It's not something for the faint hearted, but great way to grow up and learn a lot of different skills, a lot of different skill sets and a lot of confidence, confidence in being able to do pretty much anything because you just don't have any choice. You just do it. And that's kind of where, why that we've been able to move into the manufacturing concept the way that we have. Is it a family business? How long has it been in the family? So yeah, currently... Zipcrow itself is not a family business uh, necessarily anymore. My farm is. Yeah. Actually, I work for now for my wife because my wife's now a full-time farmer. Okay. And now my to-do lists are a little different than some people's minds. They build the hay and uh, clean up the barns on the weekends and evenings. <laughs> but uh, Zipcrow itself uh, is currently separate but equal on our radar of our lifestyle choices kind of thing. 
Is there, I imagine some of that ethic from growing up on the farm, this mindset of, you know, you got to work with your hands, you got to, you got to find, find solutions to problems in the moment that they happen. You know, you got to be re really resourceful. And it's just a, like, a, I imagine a work ethic that has to have carried through in your subsequent endeavors. It's a hundred percent. And that's like, I mentioned, one of the reasons I love being out in this area, even though we have maybe less of a choice of employee, when I find those other farm kid concepts who still want to live in this area, but are talented and skill set. Yeah, they can do anything. They can and do do everything. And, and there's, let's just say, I don't ever hear it's not my job here. It's just like, oh, okay, let's, let's get on that. Let's figure it out. Yeah. I mean, where sometimes, you know, I, I love engineers and, and I have a couple, but you know, you don't necessarily have to be an engineer to figure problems out and fix and have solutions. So I think that's fantastic. You just need some duct tape. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> And so how do you think about building a team when, you know, you, you talked a little bit about talent, about availability, what's there on the ground. Obviously, you know, there's people rethinking what is and isn't possible with remote work. COVID shook a lot of things up. So, you know, how, what was your perspective when you were starting the company and, and how has that evolved over the years? Um, I think it, it's a little similar to what we were discussing. It's finding attitude. My, the older I get and the more companies I've been involved in, now what I really search for in an employee is more obviously work ethic, which we all want, but a desire to learn, desire to learn everything, just a passion for education and learning. We just, you know, being a smaller company, we're only, you know, 20 some employees now, but there's just not room for doing one thing over and over. It's just like, oh, and so many new things come up regularly and every day. It's like, like, oh, this is so cool. We just learned this. Let's implement this or let's try this. It's like the excitement and get the excitement is contagious as well. So I'm trying to find people definitely not like me, but that mindset of trying, because we don't want too many of those. But uh, with that mindset of, you know, just the, the desire to learn, the desire of, of being better, just constantly striving, choosing to live in a rural community, but being better than, you know, just, you know, doing one thing. You don't have to be in downtown Toronto or New York or LA to find really good employees. I imagine you cut your teeth on what to do and what not to do when it comes to hiring the right folks. So when you're starting ZipGrow, I'm always curious about, you know, those first couple of hires are so key because they almost set the foundation for what the, the culture is going to be like the company. So how do you think about that and how much of what you learned from your previous companies influences those decisions? I'm a huge believer in culture, Harry, especially with smaller companies. Culture is everything, you know, getting the right people in the bus, that whole concept and when I'm doing my MBA, I used to think getting the right people in the bus meant getting the most skilled people until I actually did the case study in my MBA, which doesn't mean that at all. It literally means getting the people who believe the same as you do to go to the same direction. I'm like, wow, once you get to that point, you understand that everyone on the same team going in the same direction is fantastic, can just go like crazy, as opposed to, you know, just getting really smart, talented people all doing their own thing in their own little silos just doesn't you can be you can have the most talented team in the world but if they're not all going the same direction you're not going to get anywhere and that's been a huge focus it's just getting those that right people especially in those you know those first couple of years it's like you know we all have to do everything it's like and when you find that person like yeah that's what i want to do it's like oh wow like that's a great employee you're like oh there's more people like me <laughs> yeah well hopefully not too many how have you matured or evolved as a leader over the course of the companies and how's taken those lessons and applied that to, to Zipro? Great question. Just completely generic business question, which I love. That's interesting. So I, the biggest thing is as I become more mature, debatable, I guess, depending on who you ask, 
it's, you know, just hiring people smarter than you and, and start stop trying to be everything to everyone, admitting when you just don't know it. Look, I'm, I'm not, a, not a techie in any shape or form. I love the concepts. And I love learning it. And I want to know enough to know whether or not something is being done correctly. But just hiring people who kick my butt in skills and knowledge and brain power and like, why would I not? And so I think just be, being, you know, mature enough or confident enough to say, yeah, these people are way smarter than me. Let's hire them <laughs> instead of trying to feel like I have to be, you know, be all and end all to everyone else. So that's, I've changed a lot over the years on that. And it's a great thing. That's just go a lot quicker. It's all about the team. It's all about the team. So coming from a traditional ag, I'm wondering, um, as you start to build ZipGrow, are you looking to see what others are doing? Do you just know that you have enough experience in the industry to get started in this? I'm just curious how you decide what the offering is going to be on day one, who your customer is going to be, and you know what uh, who the target audience is as in those early days. Well, actually, I think that's a great question, Harry, because I think the reality is coming from traditional ag, as much as I do absolutely believe in the product. I believe in the industry. I believe in changing the world. I believe in feeding people. I also come from the perspective is it has to have an ROI. You can't just hope and feel good about doing something great and not ever actually make money or not ever actually just spend other people's, you know, equity investment and then end up, you know, doing nothing. So for that perspective, we, everything we've done has to come from the perspective of this customer has to eventually make money or hopefully make money day one or year one rather. And that's how we look at it because I've been there. <laughs> like I get this, this is, I'm not only selling a good idea, I'm selling a business. And what we've ended up realizing is we actually, our slogan now is, you know, zip grow, we grow farmers. Like we actually take someone who has no idea sometimes what they're doing and sometimes they're putting their life savings into this. And I take that very seriously. I'm not just, you know, here's buy some equipment, see you later, goodbye. We now have to help you succeed. Yeah. So a big focus of Zipro and always has been education support, especially post sales support. We need to help them actually succeed because this is now a business. So we are actually helping people be, uh, start businesses, start farms, become new farmers. So an ROI is the perspective I think I bring that a lot of do not. It's literally, I understand these people, these customers, this could be their life saving. They have to make money. They have to get a return. So that's how I focus what we try to create and sell. Yeah, it's really important, especially with folks that are moving into the space. They may have the passion, but if they don't have the education, if they don't understand the business that they're getting into and all the aspects of running a business, to your point, ROI, like not only just you could be the best grower, and but at the end of the day, if no one's buying your stuff, <laughs> going to sit there. So, you know, how do you think about all the different phases and all the different skill sets that a successful farmer needs to have and to prepare them for this journey? Yeah, well, I don't think I ever could think of all of them, but I will tell you that we see a couple things, um, you know, the further we are in this. And again, we've been selling commercial farms for 10 years. So this is like we've seen a lot of farmers. I mean, there are times that we're doing we're building a farm a week. Like we've just seen a lot of farms out there. We've helped a lot of people start businesses. Um, and I see a couple things. I see probably the biggest challenge I see for a lot of people is they think that indoor farming is a machine and you turn it on and it makes lettuce or what have you. And like, okay, well, when I buy it, how much am I going to get? How much produce am I going to get? Well, I can tell you what somebody has got, but I cannot tell you what you're going to get because they kind of think it's just a machine. 
and I do find this as a big issue, especially coming from a traditional background, it's still farming. And it comes with all the issues that farming and risks that farming comes with. The other thing I see as well is, you know, predominantly two type of people who want to get into this as a new industry that do not come from this as a background. One is somebody who just desperately wants to get out of an office or get out of, you know, whatever their situation is and just wants to grow. They want to be connected with what they do. They just want to be in there and, and grow and be a farmer, but they don't actually like people. They don't know how to sell. They don't know how to market, nor do they ever want to. The other type of person we see quite often is that people who really love people and they love this idea and they love this concept and they love this story and they want to be connected, but spend eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours a day in a farm working. (laughs) So we see these two dichotomies and I I always find it just fascinating. It's like, this is a business. You don't have to do it all. Or you have to at least have a partner or hire somebody to do the other side. So I think that's one of the challenges we see. It's like, this isn't just to save the world. And I'm, I, I love being in an industry that I can feel good about, but it's also a business. It's also farming. It actually has all the risks associated with it. And prime example, we'll have, and I won't say what city because people could figure out what it is. I have a, there's a particular city in the U.S., northern U.S., that I sold two farms, identical farms, identical equipment. In a smaller city, you know, mid-range city, and one farmer is just killing it, buying phase two, just killing it. The next farmer is like, well, this doesn't work. It's the same equipment. It's the wow. same city. It's the same customer. So I think in this whole industry, whether it's us or any other equipment manufacturer, the equipment doesn't make food. The equipment is how you make your food and how you end up farming. It's just the tool. It's like a tractor. And that's how I look at it. Do you know enough now or just with your experience in conversations with potential farmers looking to get started, if someone has the proclivity, the potential to succeed? You know, do you know what are the things that make up someone? What are you looking for? What are the, what are the traits of someone who's looking to get into this and may not maybe write enough more than they, they can chew, no pun intended. No, I do. And actually, I think I find it, I think there's surprise when I start sometimes in a conversation where they might come to the boardroom and start chatting about, you know, this or that. And I, they feel like I'm discouraging them. I'm not discouraging them. I just want to make sure they understand. Again, I don't want to, I also have my human. I don't want to feel like somebody, you know, I'm not trying to convince somebody to buy our equipment and start this new career. And if it doesn't work for them, you know, whatever. I would much rather a successful farmer because they sell more farms for me. So yes, we definitely see it. And it comes down to making sure they are aware of both sides of the story. There's the farming and you still have to market and sell this product. It's still a product. It's a widget. I mean, in some respects, it's not like selling corn or soybeans where you just put it on the market, right? And then the other side of that coin, I think, is just making sure that people are aware that this is still work. <laughs> this isn't just a machine. It doesn't, I don't care what system you buy and I don't care how automated it is. I don't care what kind of AI there is. And I don't care if it's, you can look at it on your phone in the cloud, which we all do. That isn't farming. That is just telling you if there's an issue potentially and potentially it doesn't tell you every issue. So I've actually had people like, well, I, I can go away for the week and go on holidays. <laughs> no, and if you do, you better at least have someone there. Like this is still farming. Yeah. Get that through your head. So that's kind of what I guess that's one advantage of coming from traditional is like trying to make people understand that because I, I really, I think sometimes we as an industry do a disservice from being overly anxious to sell product without making sure of the success of the customer. Yeah. I think what happens is that sort of, damages the whole industry because the, the people who 
haven't had success or who failed at it will then go back and say, yeah, try that vertical farming thing doesn't work. Yep. You know, to your point, they haven't put in the time and they don't realize what was involved when they were getting into it in the first place. So just uh, for the benefit of the listener, can you describe what the current product offering is for ZipGrow and what are the different markets you're serving? Yeah, absolutely. So we're very proud of what we've been doing, especially lately. We've been really pushing the envelope a little bit. Again, maybe it's my issue of being uh, entrepreneurial and wanting to do everything. But we have everything currently from online hobby. You know, I've seen you know some of your past podcasts from that in-house system in your kitchen, et cetera. We do very well with that. We've been doing that for a very long time. To you know, school and education is also a big thing for us. We're very committed to educating students and young people and making sure they understand and actually have an opportunity to get connected with the food they eat and understand where it comes from. So we've got a big push in education, schools, research and development with the universities, et cetera. But of course, our bread and butter is still commercial farms. So we do commercial greenhouse farms. We do commercial warehouse, indoor vertical farms. A lot of them, that's our main bread and butter. And we also have our newest product, which is our ZipPod, which is a containerized farm, which we've developed from the ground up. It's not a shipping container. It is a purpose-built container for being able to farm in a vertical farming sense in a containerized version, which we call the ZipPod. Very happy with that. We just released that. So we kind of have the whole gamut right now. And of course, everything is built around our patented tower growing truly vertical. We call ourselves truly vertical instead of stack trays, and and it's nothing against the other side of it, but that's what we do. Do you see a lot of folks dipping their toe in the water, starting with one of the smaller offerings and then, you know, realizing what's involved and then, you know, getting excited at at what's possible and to grow into something bigger? Yeah. And, you know, it kind of goes back to that last question prior, as far as, you know, what do we do with those customers that really are, you know, desperate wanting to to get into this. And sometimes instead of trying to sell them a commercial farm, which they don't know what they're doing yet, it's like, look, let's just try this small system, (laughs) you know, play with this in your garage or your backyard or your kitchen or whatever, and understand the concept because a lot of people really truly have no, but we small to medium sized farms. We're not doing the hundred thousand square footers. That's, you know, the plenties of the world. And we don't even want to touch that. We do commercially viable small to medium farms. I think a lot of Companies out there don't think that that's a thing, but we do this every day. We are building farms, you know, weekly, if not, you know, two, three times a month minimum of commercial entities, you know, from two to 20,000 square feet. So a lot of times when we have a lot of interest, we just say, look, try this little in your kitchen, (laughs) you know, play with this because we have so many people talking to us literally about quit my job and I'm going to get a mortgage on my house and I'm going to start a farm. I'm like, whoa, just just <laughs> yeah. hold on. As much as I want yeah. the sale, I would prefer that you were successful and you understand what you're doing. So let's play with this for a bit. Try it. Make sure you love it. If you do love it, you know, it's still commercial. It's not a you know commercial volume, but at least it gives you that concept. And I think that's important because, again, I think this is the only industry where the most customers have no experience. It's just a, it's a very strange industry that way. And what's so the entry-level product then? Entry-level product, like I said, it's an in-home product. We're not even trying in this case to get people to grow for commercially, but, you know, just to have your kids do it. So our Zip Garden is a new one we've done. Uh, it's a great product. It looks decent. It grows great amount of volume, but you can put it in your kitchen and it doesn't clash. It's not just, it's not just a farm in your kitchen. It's actually a kind of an appliance in your kitchen. Yeah. That's a great entry-level. You can play with it. It gives you... It's exactly the same as a commercial system, except it's much smaller. So it gives you all the concepts. 
all the ability to play with it and try with it and have your kids get involved, you know, and, and cut your lettuce or your kale or whatever for your smoothies in the morning, whatever it is you do. And, and I think that people should try something before they jump into this. Do you see anyone getting like a zip card and maybe trying to do a little bit of like a home-based business? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, actually, absolutely. And we do have a few in between the zip gardens to, you know, our education racks, you know, 16 towers. 16 towers can grow a lot of food. Yeah. And they literally will do one or two in their garage as phase two and, you know, kind of sell to friends and family and they get the bug. Those are the people who will be successful. I love those people. They've tried it. They've done it. They've done the work. Now I can give them a really optimized commercial system where they can really kill it. I feel better about that group of uh, sales than the ones who are like, yeah, I'm making the, ch-. you know, I've got, we've got impromptu buyers, which I don't even understand. It's like, yeah, I'm buying a farm. Like, have you ever done anything? <laughs> nope. We're doing it. I'm like, okay. What's the mix in terms of like regions? And do you have a specific focus? Do you like to keep, you know, stay close to where your customers are or cover in all areas now? Not at all. We've always been actually very international. Five, six, seven years ago, we were, you know, 80% North America, 20% international. I consider Canada and the US to be the same. Now we're over 50 50. Sometimes we're actually more international than North American based. I see a huge focus, obviously, in the Middle East. It just makes a lot of sense. Also, we're big, especially with our new container farms, which are very well insulated and and designed for this purpose. You know, extreme heat and extreme cold. We've just this week sold the pods to both the Cayman Islands and Malta Islands and cutoff areas are big for us as well. Like I said, we're doing a small to medium. So we can actually sell something to individual or a group of two to three people, and they can literally run a business in a secluded area. St. Pierre and Mickle on the island of France off of our coast. Those are the areas which really make a lot of sense where they're importing all of their food. And like I said, I'm not against, we're certainly not against, and I'm supportive of the 200,000 square foot farms that are being built. It's a different concept, but it doesn't have to be, you know, 20 million, $100 million of investment to make it work. Yeah, it's really interesting. As I'm actually getting on a plane to Dubai this couple of days, courtesy of our sponsor of this show, Cultivated. They're sponsoring a conference there, and it's the first time I'll be out in that part of the world. But to your point, it's one of those regions that is really seeing a, a big uptick in interest in terms of you know farms and obviously directly correlated to the climate issues they're experiencing there. So it'll be a fun experience, and it'll be interesting to see what's happening in that space. And I'm sure that speaks to what you're seeing as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, food security. I mean, most Middle Eastern countries have, you know, decided once they realized that, you know, hydroponics was an actual thing that can make money. It's like, hold on, why are we importing food? Yeah, yeah. yeah, they have energy. They need very little water. It just makes sense. I think you're going to see the whole, I mean, as you people stop potentially watering the deserts in California, Arizona, and Nevada, because they ran out of water, I mean, you're just going to, and also in Spain and Northern Africa and a few other places, the same thing outside of the pond. That's the same issues exactly. I think you're going to really start to see the whole shift focus. We're like, you know, hold on. Why are we doing this again? We can just grow our own. Like, oh, yeah, okay, there we go. Food security is the big word. So talk to me about the thinking around ZipPod. Obviously, a lot of folks, you know, going down the route, just taking a, a typical container, just retrofitting it for, you know, their farms. Is that something you initially thought and then decided it makes more sense to build something from the ground up? Oh, absolutely. We actually originally owned a couple of those okay. container farms in the past. And there's nothing against utilizing that. And it's really quite honestly, it's a sexy story to, 
to recycle use containers. It's not what it used to be. They're not throwing containers out like they used to. There is not a huge amount of containers being wasted right now, especially not insulated reefer containers. The issue that we just ran into over and over is there just isn't the room in it to do the volume that we want to do. It is not insulated the way it actually needs to be insulated. It just can't do, you know, in, we're in Canada or in the Middle East, we can't do the plus, you know, the minus 40s to the plus 40s, right? You just can't do it. And then the other side of that, of course, is it's just not truly a closed environment. Like we want a closed environment. CA is CA for a reason. It's not kind of CA. It's got to be a closed environment. Otherwise, like we just ended up with so many issues and we ended up having to redesign them so many times. We said, you know what? And that's how we got into the whole Zipco and the, you know, in the towers and doing our own products and our own product. And are, are they built for growth? Are they modular or can you stack them together? They're built for growth. They're not built modular to be able to stack them. We do the largest footprint we can do and still have them be delivered on a truck. So they are wide load without the escort. They're 40 by 10 by 10 or 10 by 10 by 40, which gives us about a 1600 extra cubic foot. And again, because we're truly vertical, we do towers. We utilize that space directly. We can have proper four rows. We have an actual aisle that you can actually work in. Yeah, and we design them specifically for the issues that we've seen in the container industry. And the container industry is limited by the container. What I imagine you have several of these in the wild now, and what's been the feedback so far? So far, it's actually been fantastic. It's 248-foot towers, plus your signaling area, plus your work area, everything enclosed. That's, you know... It's almost a full-time career for someone, just one container where they can drop it. And, I, and again, I still absolutely believe, you know, proper indoor warehouse farm is the most economical way of growing indoors you can get. But there are certain situations where that doesn't necessarily make sense. And the big one right now is, which we all have seen, which is, you know, construction. You know, just, just the limitations of, you know, getting a building, fitting it out, hiring contractors, et cetera, where I can drop this. It, everything is there. You plug it in. 200 amp service, but you plug it in and you're growing that day. Well, it's a, it's a little different than somebody who wants to be to start farming who now has to go hire a contractor, try to understand how to get that building ready. What's the R value they need? What's you know all of these construction things, their electricians, etc. Where this comes, everything, including dehumidification, including HVAC, already pre-charged. You just literally hook it up to power and you start growing. It makes a big difference for somebody who's trying to get going and not you know, waste six months to a year. Uh, to be able to actually play with this. Naturally, like everyone else, I imagine you start with leafy greens. How much work or investigation have you done? And what else is possible in that environment, given what you've experienced so far? Thank you for asking that question, because to be quite honest, people get tired of me saying, why are you growing lettuce? I don't get it. Our customers do grow lettuce, but I just don't really understand the point of it. (laughs) This is what I tried to explain, again, coming from the business side of things and the ROI side of things and the traditional farming. The input cost, the opex, if I was growing lettuce or I was growing for whatever, basil any, or any other product, are pretty much the same. Sale price is two, three, four times. Why are you growing lettuce? So for us, we are actually, that's a big focus of us is actually really getting into high margin, high value crops, especially due to the nature of our, our actual equipment. It really well suited to traceability. It's well suited, completely clean, completely repeatable. So we're actually getting into not just herbs, but keep going. You know, strawberries we've been doing now for six months and we're killing it on strawberries. But also getting into the next step, which is 
biopharmaceuticals and biocosmetic. You know, there's so many companies in this world importing from the tropics who have no control over the sustainability of the plants that they need to purchase for some either pharmaceutical or cosmetic application. I can grow that literally in your warehouse beside you in Toronto, New York City, or LA. And you don't have to worry about child labor or cutting down the rainforest or whatever else that is. And you can now trace every single ounce of that because that is super important, which they cannot currently do. So that is a big focus for us is actually going to do more and more higher end crops, more difficult crops. Also, and even in the traditional sense, I mean, the whole industry still to this day has pretty much just taken field crop seed and put it inside, which makes absolutely no sense. The reason field crops are there is because, you know, being able to travel, being able to not bruise, et cetera, all the issues that we're fixing, but we're still using the same seed. <laughs> I think that's a whole other industry, which is, I can't wait for that to really get going. I mean, even just using heritage breed crops, which have been almost lost, which we can now use because traditionally our customers are right beside their customers. So it's, you know, same day harvest, same day set. What are some of the crops or some of the, the plants that you're growing for these industries? I'll tell you a couple that I don't mind telling you yet. Yeah. Some of them I won't. Things like St. John's wort, okay. stevia, like some really, really cool things that I'm like, it grows so well. Obviously, we've even tried a lot of things like even things like aloe, like succulents, which I, again, we're, we're on a 24-hour drip cycle. I would not grow our they grow like crazy, even things like ornamentals and flowers and stuff. It all grows well. And hydroponics is hydroponics. They all grow very well. It's just whether or not it makes economic sense. And that's the whole point. I mean, to which one of those for the specific market you're in, for the specific customer or, or that you're looking to target makes the most sense for you from an ROI perspective? It just makes a lot of sense to be thinking about it in those terms. Well, I mean, the obvious one is leafy, is baby greens. Like, let's just go there because if you're going to grow lettuce, why not just grow baby greens? It's the same thing. You just harvest more often and you get more money. So to me, I always try to tell people, just start there. Like, there's your basics. And then, actually, I think there's a big market to be had and it's, it hasn't really been touched with is very specialty crops, a lot of them which are internationally focused. Our international communities in North America and Europe are becoming bigger where they're importing certain plants that they have to import from, you know, potentially Asia or wherever else it is. And again, it still comes back to we're small to medium. So it's getting connected to your farmer. So what does your local community want? You know, what is in your community? What is the makeup of your community? And then actually getting to know them and finding out what they can and cannot do. If you want to go on the other side of it, you know, the pharmaceutical, et cetera, like I think that's definitely the future. But for our customers today, it's Get to know your local community, your local restaurants, your local grocery store, and really sell to them and sell what they want. You may have just answered this question, but if you have someone who's coming to you, you know, just getting about to get started, looking to get into this and maybe, you know, looking at growing some of these specialty greens, you know, what else can they do in terms of homework, in terms of prep work? You know, you mentioned looking at who's buying what in your area. So to have the best chance of success. Kind of, yeah, it goes back to the way back. You can grow whatever you'd like, but you have to sell it. Yeah. So market, what is your market? How do you connect with that market? What's your story? It's like any other small, you know, get to know your farmer's markets, you know, CSAs, et cetera. I mean, selling retail obviously is, is always better if you can. The margins are better, but now, of course, it's more work, et cetera. And everyone, not everyone, it seems to be. I don't, I dissuade from this. This seems to be the nature is everyone is looking for what's that grocery store that wants to take the most amount of whatever Boston lettuce. I'm like, why would you bother? Yeah. You can grow 
you know, a quarter as much and make the same amount of money selling to your, your local people who are actually also dependable and they support you and they get to know you. And then like, that's where it is. Again, I'm not against the very large farms in any shape or form. We sell farms to people who need to make money and this is their new career and small to medium, like I said, 2,000 to 20,000 square feet where, you know, you could be a mom and pop shop concept selling at the local farmer's market and make enough money to survive up to, you know, five, 10, 20 people, but still local, even your local grocery store. So to me, local is the most, the, the best brand there currently is. It beats organic hands now, now local, local, local. So be that local farmer. That's why I tell them. That's absolutely great advice. Uh, where are you seeing the most growth out of all the product lines? That's actually funny. We are seeing a huge change. When we, Like I said, we're one of the older companies we've been selling commercially for 10 years now. We've seen a huge change over the years. It used to be a lot of DIY, mom and pop type concepts. We are now seeing in, in the industry is becoming legitimized. I mean, like take plenty and take, you know, Walmart's investment in plenty. It's mainstream. Like there's no more doubt. This is where it's going. So, but we've seen a huge change where we're getting institutions. We're getting larger corps who just want to get involved. And we've seen that that's a big shift for us. It's great because the sale numbers are bigger. Also, the sales cycles are longer. So, I mean, it's kind of given a take, but we're seeing it switch over from just the individual one person want to do something in their backyard or a little hoop house or, you know, whatever to institutions to, you know, we signed a contract last year with Sodexo. Like those companies are all want to get on board. We have had probably every major grocery store chain um, in the country in our boardroom asking to be involved. They want to buy, they want to get involved. Sometimes right now, actually, the issue is, is matching up the buyer and finding the grower because we, we manufacture equipment. We're not the grower necessarily. We grow farmers and we need to grow some more farmers to actually, the supply is there. I mean, sorry, the demand is there. Really just need more people actually to jump on that. And to do that, I mean, the biggest challenge is typically financing. Yeah. So in this industry. I saw that you were one of the companies that signed the manifesto. Can you talk about how you someone bring that to you? Did you how did you discover it, and what made you want to jump on board? Yeah, actually, it was brought to us. Uh, they approached us on on that first. I'm like, what? Manifesto <laughs> it sounds a little bit to a Unabomber yeah. concept, but then I'm like, yeah. I really like actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I do absolutely support the industry needs to get over themselves a little bit and realize, look, we are all on the same page here. Like, there's no one silver bullet. There's no one solution for the you know, feeding the world concept, but to actually get involved in something where we are committing to being that long-term player and actually helping to change what needs to be changed. So this industry itself can actually long-term be what we know it will end up being. So it's just you know, actually committing to that. And the other companies that, that committed that, I respect them all as well. And I think we do need as an industry to stop being so competitive that we think we all have some secret sauce and we do to a degree, and that's great, but we're really, it's an industry that's growing, and it's still growing plants. It's hydroponics. It's yeah. not that complicated. Yeah, and I will say, for the most part of all the conversations I had, it really feels like an all-hands-on-deck moment, and it feels like we're all moving towards the same goal. There's enough business for everyone. There's enough need to solve this problem on across the globe, so it doesn't feel like there's going to be any shortage of, uh, of activity and interest in this space for a, a long time to come. So that being said, I know it's hard to plan anything beyond three or five years, especially in business. And I'm sure you, you can speak to that, uh, having run several yourself. So when you think long-term and you think 
roadmap future for ZipGrow, maybe six months to a year? What's top of mind for you? Yeah, difficult question. And of course, what we're talking about every day right now, I think what, what comes to mind is kind of get back to basics a little bit. So we've been, again, everything's based around our tower system. And I think we've got the gamut now of, you know, to from hobby to larger scale indoor or greenhouse growing. And I think right now it kind of get we're getting back to basics. And we never done sales. We've never done marketing ever in our industry, our history, to be honest you know, a few little press releases or whatever, but that's hundred percent because we are known as the educators and the supporters. So we're actually reinventing that side a little more. I mean, we've had things like uh, Upstart University, complete online courses. We've now recently refocused back into our community. We're doing an eight week uh, hydroponics course at a local community college. We're going back to educating. And I think that's where we're refocusing a lot of our efforts is realizing that the industry itself is going to grow out of necessity just because we need more food, we need food security, we having issues with water supply, et cetera. And from our perspective is we want to continue to be the one that supports the industry itself, supports new people, supports young kids. We're getting into education in schools a lot more. We're doing curriculums. We're actually teaching community colleges. We're focusing on educating so that more people, it just baffles me when I go to a show or something and people haven't heard of growing indoors. I'm like, what? <laughs> but it's still most of the population, right? It's still yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Growth, this is so new. I'm like, well, we don't want it to be new anymore. So we want, they want the average person to understand it so well that it's just adopted as a norm instead of the norm is the, I mean, I don't know why people think it's so natural to water a desert and then harvest that like that's natural growing. To me, there's nothing natural about that. The natural should be conservation of water and food security yeah. and food safety. Is that something that you see as a possible challenge in terms of uh, talent? You know, because I've, I've noticed that it's a common thread. We recently updated a site we have called Vertical Farming Jobs, and we've created what we call a collective for people who are looking for jobs in industry. And the first day that I posted it, like six people just submitted like their resumes. Like they wanted, they're really interested in this space. And that's just like, I'm sure just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, there's a lot of, to your point, educating them at a younger level is probably you know part of the solution. But do you see that as a challenge going forward? I mean, take a look at an industry currently in North America and or Europe, you know, finding talent and funding manpower is, is huge. Finding skilled, learned people in this industry is almost unheard of. And we still are at the stage of just assuming we're going to bring people on who have great attitudes and train them. If I can find some that aren't, and actually we are starting to do that. And we are seeing, I, I shouldn't say that, we're actually starting to see, especially the more recent college grads from some of the universities like Guelph in, in Canada, that's a high school who understand this quite well, who are like, yeah, we want to get involved in this industry well or or something similar. So we are seeing that for certain a little bit more, but we still are at that stage. We're still training, you know, good skills. Oh, you want to change the world? Come join us. I'm going to help you. We're going to help you and you're going to learn that. But it's becoming less of that. But I think we all need to be doing better at, you know, educating the young and educating the consumer, period, about what this industry really is and what it isn't. Yeah, things like the manifesto help to get the word out at a wider scale to folks and just kind of get some of this language into, you know, the common areas where people are, you know, like to your point, they hear the term and they think it's something to have to do with like robots <laughs> and skyscrapers. Oh, absolutely. And then you go to, it depends where you are, whether in the U.S. and you can be organic 
where you're in a can and you can't be organic or in Europe where it's like, what, it's not soil. It must be terrible for you. <laughs> like just kind of getting some common knowledge out there, getting some common language, educating the consumer. So this isn't a big deal. We shouldn't have to try to convince them that this is healthy. I still just baffles me every time someone says, okay, well, is it healthy? Like, <laughs> what? Oh, because it's not going soil. Maybe it might yeah. not be healthy. I'm like, we give it everything it wants. It's much healthier. <laughs> really? It is still, yeah. we shouldn't have to be still explaining that. Well, it's funny because I, I came back from indoor ag tech NYC and I was in, uh, I live in Minneapolis now, but I grew up in New York. So I went to go visit my folks. I was explaining to my dad about this on vertical farming and I was really struggling to like explain, you know, it's grown, it's like across the river. So it just comes into New York city and it's, it's very fresh. And he's like, yeah, it comes from California. And he's like, they get on the plane and they just have it there and it, and it worked. And it's, they've been doing it for years. And I was really interesting because I was really struggling to, to kind of explain like the benefit and organic and local and, and transportation. So there is like, I experienced it firsthand, you know, with yeah. my family. And, and I think there's an education, you know, maybe there's, we need a new documentary or something just specifically for, for yeah. vertical farming or something like that. So I, well, I, I agree. Actually, you're, you, Harry, you mentioned from Minneapolis, you were talking about how things are changing. One of this really cool, got a, We've been working this for years and years, a big potential uh, customer in, in Minneapolis, designing a complete community around. And I, we're seeing this a lot more. You're seeing this in a lot of things. And, and it's actually some of these things are being built around you know, growing your own food. In this case, look it up if you're curious. Just as an aside, not from the interview, yeah. I guess, from, called The Place, which is a, in Minneapolis, a full community being built out. And it looks like they've got their funding now. It's going to be a, big, a real thing. I got full community with community being built around the actual farms which are going to supply the community that's i think that's so fascinating that's, sort that's of cool. awesome that's really cool and is, is that a project that zip crow's working on yeah we've been working on that for four years wow and it's finally coming to fruition it looks like well yeah keep me informed i'd love to go check it out if there's anything i can do to to kind of like help them or do a little story on them i mean I, the fact that it's here in my backyard is something i get my hands on that'd be great yeah, I'll send you a link to them. It's pretty fun. It's pretty exciting. We've been working it forever. Yeah. And then they finally looks like they're getting it down. So it's just a a community of people building houses, et cetera, but based around a sustainable concept where it's, it's not a commune kind of thing, but <laughs> it's uh, maybe a little, but it, I think it's pretty fun. Anyway, it'd be interesting to do a story on it. Yeah, very cool. What's a tough question you had to ask yourself recently? Uh, what's my sales cycle look like? Who, who's my customer? It's changing quickly. Okay. There's been a few of those. You know, the biggest issue I have, like probably you and a lot of other entrepreneurs, is like, I can't just do everything. I need to just stop because I'm like, oh, this is exciting. Let's do that. Oh, that's exciting. Actually, I'll be actually, I'll actually be frank with you a little bit. One of the things I've actually been struggling with personally is, you know, I and a lot of the other equipment manufacturers are selling, and there's no doubt that this is actually, this is higher end product. That's not cheap. And yes, you could do a really cheap version of some of this stuff, I guess. But, and we do, we are wanting to help feed the world, et cetera. But, you know, how can I develop something around our tech that is cheap enough that I can actually go and help those countries that really need food, not just the European, North American countries who really want to pay more for quality food yeah not sure if i wanted to be that honest with it but it's just something i've actually been thinking about a lot lately it's like you know i really love designing the system where people can actually make an roi and in, the, in this case are more affluent even though we can and do try to promote and you know those food deserts and etc in north america and europe and wherever but 
how can we actually really help those people that are having issues eating? Yeah. Who really need it. Who really need it today. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot. Well, again, keep me updated if there's anything you need to do to spread the word or to get the word out in that area. You know, obviously, uh, I'd love to be that bullhorn for you. <laughs> how? Uh, let me ask you a quick question. How is... Uh, you're at what, 70 some podcast now or 60 something? Yeah, closing in on yes, 60 plus, yeah. Is this all you thought it would be? How is this different than when you started out this journey? It was just, a, you know, it was just curiosity. My background is podcasting. I had my first shows in 2014 called Podcast Junkies. It's a show where I interview other podcasters. So I've cut my teeth there, 300 plus interviews. And then we have a podcast agency that produces shows. So I had the technical pieces done, but then I obviously, I'm just naturally curious. I love long form conversations because I feel that's the best opportunity to tell stories. I love origin stories. Now I'm an entrepreneur myself, you know, so I'm always curious, you know, what people take, what gets people out of bed in the morning. And I think it's interesting that the show kicked off just as COVID was hitting. That was not intentional. I, I mean, this is about end of 2019 when the idea was brewing. And it just seemed like the right thing to be focusing on. And it's, you know, again, supply chain issues, you know, food deserts, all these things just started popping up. And I, and it feels like, wow, there's so many stories to tell. I thought I would run out of interviews. <laughs> I thought I'd run out of people to talk to. But then, you know, I go to Interact Tech and I see I come back with 20 new names to, to interview on the show. You know, glad I, I, and we got connected as well. And there's just more needs to be told. I've got people reaching out to me and saying, hey, I'm looking to get into the industry. I've been binging your podcasts. I'm like so fascinated to hear these stories are very inspiring. I can't wait to enter the space. So just like I'm trying to think about, okay, I have the platform now. You know, I, we've got a newsletter going out. We've got vertical farming jobs going out. You know, what else can we do to just help educate, get the word out, tell these stories and let people know there's no one path into this industry. Like so many of these stories in the beginning of people like didn't even think they were going to be in, in vertical farming, yeah. you know, to begin with. And then, you know, a couple of years later, they, like they find themselves, yeah, running a company. So it's, I'm so amazed by what's happening. I'm so grateful to be, you know, having a front row seat to these stories. And, and I just want to use that platform as much as possible to tell these stories and to show people what's happening. You know, there's all the stuff that's happening in Africa, India, I'm in Dubai, like it's just the Middle East. It's just a lot more that needs to be told and a lot more to your point education that needs to happen. So, you know, to the extent that this platform can help that and branches of this platform can do more of that is definitely something that's sort of made it my mission to do as well. Well, fantastic. I love your style, by the way, the one I've listened to all of them, but I listen to a big whack of them. Yeah. I love the style. I think you're doing a great job. So, and I appreciate, by the way, your request and I'd be more than happy to answer anything else. I wasn't cutting this off. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. No, it was actually really good. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, so we're just uh, closing in on the interview. The hour always tends to go by really fast. Just lastly, like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you going? Learning. I just want to learn everything. Yeah. I just want to understand. I want to figure out something out. I want to, I just want to figure out everything. I, I often joke that, you know, on my deathbed, I'm going to finally say, okay, I've got it. I know, <laughs> I know the meaning of life and then I will die. <laughs> That's literally all I want to do is just figure out Again, it becomes an issue when I'm like, oh, this could work. And I'm like, oh, I should start a new company <laughs> just because I think it might yes. work. I shouldn't do it. But I will say that as far as the industry specifically and Zipgrow specifically, I mean, it's just seeing the dedication of both my team, which I, I just can't say enough about, who literally give a shit, to be honest. And it's the customers who are like, 
they motivate the hell out of me. It's like when you get this customer is like, oh, just dying to get into this. And they've been talking to everyone and they can't wait to, you know, sell to their neighbors and supply us. I'm like, oh, shit, that's why we're doing it. I forgot. You know, sometimes you can get so caught up in the day to day business is business and, you know, cash flow and all those things that are fun things to deal with. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is what we're doing it for. It's like, oh, this is great. So my customers and my team, they motivate the hell out of me. So given that you've listened to uh, several of the episodes and I appreciate you listening, I never take listenership for granted as a podcaster. I appreciate people taking that's an hour of your day <laughs> for episode. But now that you know the audience is your peers, your colleagues in the space, I always like to leave some time at the end of each of these now for you. And if you have a message, if you have anything you want to say to folks in the industry, your colleagues, people listening, anything come to mind? Yeah, I think the message that I, I want to get across a little bit is, you know, all of the hype out there, all of the advertising, all of the the good news is all about typically things that never happen or never will happen. You know, it's the one or two hundred thousand, two hundred thousand square foot farms that may never make any money. And I think I really just want to focus. And I think it's one of your last podcasters, you as Ali had mentioned, small to medium farms. Like you, this is actually a real thing. The reason that we're and again, I'm not against the large farms, but the reason at least we got into this is to fix the broken food model and to just to duplicate it indoors to me isn't really fixing it. it's just doing the same you know my you know my wife and i but mostly my wife you know we are farmers in a local community they go to we go to she goes to the farmer's market she's connected to her buyers that is invaluable and it's the one thing i think we need to get back to and this is we can do and you can make money and you can be that local farmer in downtown toronto or new york or la or chicago or where have you and you can have your group of customers who get to know the farmer and understand what you're going through and understand all that concept. And you can actually make some money and you can provide food security. And it's back to the family farm. And that's what we're doing, reselling and we're retraining the family farm. And you take a look at the farming industry as a whole. And again, from the traditional side, it's dwindling more and more. There's less farmers. The age is going up and up. It's consolidation. And the barrier to entry is you just can't buy farmland anymore. You can't do that. It's just not available. This is actually a way of getting more people back into agriculture and back into being connected with the food that you eat. And I just, I want people, I want the industry to stop only focusing on the huge, massive farms that get all the credit. And I think they're important. I really do. I'm not against them. But there's also that small and medium good news story where somebody can start this farm and have a local following of people in their little local area and in their local community, and you can get to know your farmer and buy your vegetables. I think we need to not forget that. Local is the new organic. Local is better than <laughs> organic now. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot, and these all get me excited. These all get me motivated at the future of what's possible. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. Zipgrow.com, if folks want to learn more about the company, anywhere else you want to point people to? Zipgrow.com, Zippod, our new container farms, Zipgarden, our new in-house bundle. Yeah, and anything that people can do to, to educate the world that this is where we're going to end up having to be. I'm, I'm all over it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate your time. Thanks again to Eric for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our season six title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. 
podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Okay, we're back on track. So tune in next episode for our conversation with Magdalena Swarska of Nangatech. I was able to catch her presentation at Indoor Ag Tech NYC earlier this year and was grateful for us to find some time to chat. So make sure you tune into that. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 